Hello, and welcome to Learning for Life at Gustavus, the podcast about people teaching and learning at Gustavus Adolphus College. In the myriad ways that Gustavus liberal arts education provides a lasting foundation for lives of fulfillment and purpose. I'm your host, Greg Castor, faculty member in the Department of History. Anyone paying attention to U.S. politics and government in recent years is familiar with the Senate filibuster, the parliamentary maneuver to obstruct passage of legislation. Less familiar is use of the term filibusterers to describe men like William Walker, who in the 1850s and 60s led unauthorized private armed expeditions from U.S. soil bent on seizing land and power in Central America and South America. My colleague and guest today, Dr. Marco Cabrera-Gesserich of the Gustavus History Department, is an expert on the second kind of filibustering, or more precisely on how it has been collectively remembered in countries on the receiving end of it. His research on the subject has resulted in his important and highly regarded recent book titled The Legacy of the Filibuster War, National Identity and Collective Memory in Central America. In the words of one reviewer, quote, Cabrera's book deserves close attention from scholars of Latin American history and the history of nationalism. Its intriguing argument and theoretical framework make it a helpful addition to students of Latin American nationalism and collective memory. Professor Cabrera earned his PhD in history at Arizona State University and, I am happy to say, joined the Gustavus faculty in 2019. Already a professor at Gustavus, he teaches a variety of courses in Latin American history, as well as courses on collective memory in Latin America and the United States. He's also involved in the college's interdisciplinary peace studies in Latin American, Latinx, and Caribbean studies programs. I'm delighted he can join me for this conversation about his path to Latin American history, the legacy of the filibuster war, the importance of Latin America, past, present, and future, and not least, baguette baking. So Marco, welcome. It's great to have you on the podcast. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Great introduction. <laughs> thank you. And I should note that you're in uh, Costa Rica as we speak. I'm here in downtown Minneapolis, and it, you know you sound like you're in the next room, so the wonders of modern technology. How are um, how is COVID in Costa Rica? How are things there? Well, interesting question. Um, I have been actually uh, monitoring it uh, since the beginning. Of course, I was at, um, in Minnesota at that time. And um, I actually learned that Costa Rica was doing really, really well. The government uh, really intervened, um, put a lot of restrictions in, but also uh, put a, a very big effort on producing because uh, one of the alcohol uh, companies in Costa Rica is actually owned by the state. So actually they produce a lot of um, alcohol and gel, you know, for the whole population. Um, the post office was sending these to every house. And I see that actually they continue to make all, all this effort. There is no way to go to a bank, to a restaurant, to uh, any other place without, first of all, a mask on. When you enter, they take your temperature and uh, they make you immediately wash your hands or uh, use um, uh, alcohol in jail uh, before entering. So, um, and there's alcohol in jail everywhere that, that you go. So it's really impressive. And uh, it worked very well, I would say, for the first two, three months. But then we start to have some uh, concentration of people in certain areas, people that didn't follow all the procedures. So um, so it's rising. The good thing is that uh, for some reason, um, the amount of um, um, ICU um, beds um, have been always more than what we have been needing so far. So That's good. So that's, I mean, you know, for at least, at least early on, well, it sounds like still there's a, there's actually a national, a coherent national policy or message, unlike in this 
country. Um, and also good news about the ICU beds, which of course is not the case in many parts in this in this country. I was talking to a history alum um, who graduated, I think, in 2014, and she's in Hong Kong, and she was saying how, how in Hong Kong, um, you know, a hundred a hundred cases a day was like cause for alarm. Can you imagine? Right. I mean, you know, it's amazing. And the way, um, the way people there, and it sounds like in Costa Rica, at least for a time, were, were wearing masks without all the pushback that we have in this, in this right. country. It has been politicized a little bit. I mean, after all, um, the U.S. media um, informs a little bit how people here understand the world. Sure. Uh, a little bit, not uh, fully, right? And then some people have actually followed those, those um, I'm going to say, narratives that they also use in the United States. But in general, uh, the cases, uh, uh, in average, there are like uh, 1,000 cases uh, per per day in a 5 million uh, people population. If you take into account, I think Minnesota is about the same amount of people, but the number of cases every day is at least uh, four, five times more. So Yeah, wow, what a difference. The... Um so you're safe and your family is safe. That's good, well, and healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, wait, so um, what were you teaching this this semester? What, what courses? Uh, the one that just finished? Yeah. Um, I was teaching actually uh, several classes, um, um, two sections of my intro to Latin America, which is really a, a modern Latin American history. So basically I start with the independence period and try to bring it uh, to the present as the most I can. Usually I finish with the Cold War period around there. Some semesters I can push a little bit to the early 2000s, uh, sometimes not. Then I was teaching a, a colonial Latin America class. Uh, that's a more specialized, if you want. It's a 200 level, but it's one of the most popular classes I, I teach. And this semester, um, uh, they also are requested uh, from me a special class, um, an IDS class, interdisciplinary uh, studies that actually um, I had some freedom on creating this class, um, so I decided to develop uh, something that is well very um, current and uh, something that the students will relate as well and start to to put together. Um, so it's kind of a three topics, but all of them are connected: uh, pandemics, so history of pandemics. Uh, the second one is uh, talking about uh, social justice in the pandemics, and that in that way I was able to connect it to the protests around the United States and other parts of uh, the world um, during this year. And finally, end with the um, idea of a collective memory, uh, connecting it, connecting this, of course, with the protests and how some of these protests uh, ended with the toppling uh, or the overthrowing of some um, statues, and also. The discussion, even in, in local governments, of what to do with uh, these statues and what they represented. Wow, that that sounds like a fantastic course. I want to come back to that and hear more about it. Um, are, are you, well, we can talk more about that later. I was going to ask you if you're thinking of doing it again, but we can we can come back to that. So, were you doing? Um, I was doing all online again for the second semester in a row. What about you? Were you doing a mix or all online? No, I decided to go all online. I, I had some experience teaching online uh, before, so I felt very comfortable doing that. Um, and uh, also I wanted to um, avoid any possible uh, contact um, in any direction, right? Either to get sick or for me to make sick somebody. So I didn't want to take that responsibility. Yeah, I, I, I felt the same way, uh, especially as I was turning 67. I felt suddenly felt, oh, I better, I better be extra careful. It went okay. I, I mean, you know, maybe even a little better than okay, I would say, but still not the same, obviously, as, as being in person. 
Um, so let's talk, your background is interesting. I mean, I, I, I find it interesting. Um, tell us a little bit about, you were born in Germany, right? So mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about your, your background, where you grew up, and then we can get into how you became interested in history. Indeed. Uh, um, well, I have to say that Latin American people in generally are, are defined as, as a mixed people. That's a term that actually it's, it's common in the United States. Of course, here in Latin America, we don't even use it because since almost everybody's mixed, it doesn't even make sense to mention that, right? But uh, in that sense, I'm a, even a little bit more mixed. Um, and you're right, I was born in Germany, in uh, Berlin, actually, um, a very uh, cosmopolitan city. A very open-minded uh, city in general, historically. And uh, my mom actually uh, is, is from there, although she was not uh, per se born in Berlin uh, because she was born during the war. Uh, you know, the family, my, my grandma and my aunt and her had to kind of run from one city to the other, hiding with uh, relatives and all that. And But um, then she came back finally to, to Berlin, and that's where she met my, my father. He, he went there to study. Berlin. He finished um, a master's in economics, and uh, he was also he also has a, a, an interesting background. He was born in Guatemala, but oh. uh, he actually had to leave Guatemala in 1954. Um, oh. um, yeah, you may know the events that happened in 1954 in Guatemala. If you know a little bit of history, right? <laughs> right. The, the uh, is that Arbenz who's who's there and being indeed involved? the fall of Arbenz. Actually, uh, this is not something I, I mention that often in, in our uh, more casual conversations. But actually, my grandfather was um, um, a congressman uh, during the uh, governments of Arevalo and Arbenz. So the whole family had to escape, uh, you know, to save their lives. <laughs> wow. Was your so, mom? Um, your mom. Mm-hmm. Was your mom running? Well, that was she was during the war. Is she Jewish? Is that why she was moving around like that during the no, war? No, 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 no. She, um, um, although I, I don't know if we, we had some Jewish uh, background at certain point in, in history. That's very common in in, in those areas, right? But um, but no. As far as I know, uh, the situation was mostly because of bombardments. You know, um, they. Um, the Allies started to bombard Berlin, so um, I remember uh, they always talk about uh, um, an aunt of my grandmother, and then she ran to Tilsit, which uh, is a town that doesn't doesn't bear that name anymore. It was located in East Prussia, and um, now it's actually called uh, Sovietsk, and it's in Russia. So I always uh, pick on my mom, saying, "You are not really German. You are born in." Russia, so <laughs> little family joke. Yeah. Uh, but then they had to move to Nuremberg because then, uh, you know, the Russians were actually uh, taking over that uh, part of the territory, so they had to escape uh, to another uh, relative and so on. So that's that what happened during that war. Wait. So you have, I mean, in your background, in your family background on both sides, you have World War Two. Uh, and then, and then the uh, overthrow of Arbenz by essentially by the CIA is that unfair to say? I mean, is that accurate? Uh, very fair. Um, the CIA actually uh, organized a whole, um, um, how can I say, a whole plan called PBS uh, Success, which uh, you can find now on uh, FOIA. You know, the Freedom of Information Act. You can find mm-hmm. all the sure. documents. And um, of course, people like uh, Nixon, especially who was vice president at that time. But also the Dole's brothers, Secretary of State, uh, one of them, and uh, and the director of the CIA were um, directly involved in all this. So yeah, you can say that the CIA was involved. <laughs> <laughs> the um, wow, that's an interesting family background. So was your your dad? Did you say your dad was born in Guatemala, or was he born? He was born in Guatemala. Yeah, my um, the side of the family or um, 
my father's side are all uh, Guatemalan, but he was the youngest. He was uh, uh, very young when they actually had to leave. And then uh, my grandfather, of course, was looking for an embassy to, uh, you know, to get some asylum, some protection. And uh, the only one that was not full at that time was uh, the embassy of Costa Rica. And wow. so that's how, how we ended in this country. Wow, that's so interesting. Contingency in history. What about, um, did, so did your dad, was he, is he an, both your parents are living, right? Yes, they are alive, yes. Is, is, um, so is your dad an economist or was, is that, was that his career? That's right, yeah. He graduated uh, as an economist in, in Germany, in Berlin, and then he came back to Costa Rica. And um, uh, he actually started to work for the government very soon. And uh, most of his life, although he had different positions, but most of his life he was the, one of the main advisors for the Minister of uh, Labor, uh, mostly in the area of uh, planification, you know, um, uh, these kind of uh, economies, like, like the Costa Rican one that has a more social democrat approach. Um, of course, there's free market, but the government also interferes in many ways and um, planning. That's um, a very important concept. So he's in charge of all that. Also, he was in charge of um, anything, anything that has to do with uh, negotiations with uh, unions and uh, and corporations to establish uh, minimum salaries and um, things like that. Oh, that's interesting. What about your mom? Did she have a career of any sort? Yes, actually, they met because she was studying economy as well in, in Berlin. Oh. And um, once she moved here to Costa Rica, of course, uh, it was not easy to adapt. Uh, she was not that young. I mean, she was in, I think, in late 20s, early 30s when she came. Took her a while, but uh, she was lucky enough to find some uh, companies here that actually needed some bilingual people. So uh, Siemens, for example, that, mm. that's a company that's kind of internationally known, a German company. And uh, she was able to work there as an administrative assistant, and she did that as well for some more companies. Uh, then my siblings were born, and she decided to kind of uh, take only half time and be at home. So she has been going back and forth uh, between jobs and staying at home. Extremely interesting background in, in Paris. So um, how did you find your way to, to history and Latin American history in particular? Is that an interest you had from a, from a very young age? That's actually, uh, yes, very, very young age. And it has to do precisely with my background. The, the problem, and I, I, I use that term problem not in a negative way, but, uh, but, in, but in, in, in the sense of something that you have to confront, is with this uh, mixed background um, and as you say, uh, with some kind of a historical background as well, to be on, my, uh, um, on a birthday party when the whole family was together was to basically be talking about history, economics, and politics all the time. So uh, I was basically bombarded by all that, but I was also very curious because I was, uh, I was growing up in a country here in Costa Rica. I, I came here when I was almost six years old that actually had a very different view of the world. You know, there was no such thing as civil wars. Um, there was no persecution of people. There was not even an army that could actually overthrow the government and, and things like that. And so this is actually what, what sparked uh, my interest in, in, in history, especially, but in many other topics, you know, this trying to understand, okay, there are many ways to understand the world. There are many na different narratives. How do I put all this together, right? Yeah, that fits with your with your current work perfectly, which we'll get to. Yeah, I think that um, I mean certainly curiosity is a part of of learning for anybody, but I do think that that we historians we we are we are curious sometimes even kind of nosy people, whether it's curiosity about our own past. In my case, I think of my myself as Greek American because of my dad's family uh, mm -hmm. and early American, grew up in Chicago, and a big Greek 
family, but um, well, he was born in the U.S., but also rural. I mean, on my mom's side in, in kind of southern Illinois, uh, where there's still a family farm. And I, yeah, I, had, I was just always curious about my own background, right? What mm-hmm. did it mean? To, 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 why, why did I think of myself as Greek American? <laughs> I still do, even though that's not all I am. Anyway, that's that's awesome. So then, um, were there particular teachers at a young age that influenced you as well? Not really, and that's very interesting. I, I, um, of course, um, uh, took uh, um, social sciences classes when I was in. Uh, that's the name they have here. Um, that includes some kind of a geography um, with. Uh, with history, with uh, politics, and things like that, and uh, both uh, elementary and high school. And so there were no real history classes, um, as you have in the United States. And then once I was able to go to college uh, here, then, of course, uh, um, I was definitely interested in history. I, I, I was one of those kids that read a lot. And, um, and that, uh, interesting enough, uh, instead of... Uh, Calm, calming you down, you know, like answering questions actually brings more questions and you right. want to learn more and more. So I, um, and the system here is a little bit different from the U.S. in the sense that you have to take a whole year of uh, humanities. It's a, it's a whole um, morning every day of the, of the week during the whole year that actually oh, combines three professors, a, phil- a philosopher, a historian, and um, somebody specialized in language, grammar, and things like that. So it's, it's a fascinating class. And uh, just by listening to the names of the people that were talking about history, so not, not the, the famous people, but actually the historians and their approach and how they created history and how they, um, by creating, I mean how they wrote history and they analyzed uh, history, that actually caught my attention a lot. I, I I have to warn you though, my bachelor's is not in history though. Right. I remember. Your PhD, but not your BA. Yeah. Exactly. Although I was always interested in history. Um in Costa Rica is is not normal to have uh, two majors or even a major and a minor. I, I really envy the, the US system because that here you have one major and that's it. Um and you have to tell us what your major was? Uh, psychology. Right. <laughs> Which is highly useful to a historian, I think, in many ways. But um, so, so I love that about the humanities. I mean, one solid year of that. That's as is that your first year as an undergraduate, or? Yeah, it was the whole first year. It was uh, mostly humanities. I took some other um, um, elective classes, but that that's the most important part of the first year. And it sounds like you were introduced at, already at that point, really, to historiography I and mean, to the study of the writing of history, which I wasn't yeah. really. Very early, though. I mean, we're talking about uh, um, historiography coming from people like Voltaire and uh, and maybe some of the early um, German nationalists and those mm-hmm. concepts that are very early interpretations of what history is, right? But right. but still, it makes you think, oh, okay, so history is not just writing down what happened. Is okay, what happens has a meaning, and right. uh, how to interpret that and how to narrate it is, is a very important. Uh, um, aspect of history, and therefore you have to understand or have uh, have to come up with a concept of well, what is history, right? Exactly. Yeah, and that the discipline, the discipline itself, has a history, like any mm-hmm. discipline. Indeed. Um, and, and, oh, that sounds that sounds fantastic. So then, were you were you were, were your interest in history already centered on Latin America, Central America at that point? That's a very really good question. Um, 
I, I, I love that life is actually full of accidents. Um, some people call these accidents opportunities, right? Right. I, I prefer to call them accidents, and, um, and they become opportunities if you take them. And, um, and luck has a lot to do with all that because I, I finished my, my bachelor's in psychology, and uh, my goal, of course, at a certain point was to continue with that. Um, but actually, that's when I um, arrived to the United States, and uh, which I have to clarify, I didn't come here to, to actually uh, study. Um, my wife actually got a, a scholarship, a Fulbright, to come to the United States. And of course, we didn't want to separate. So I decided to um, take two years off and just come with her. My goal was to actually take some classes in uh, psychology or in labor psychology mostly. I was working as a human resources uh, manager at the time. So I thought, okay, this is something I can take advantage, you know, learn a little bit of English and uh, take some classes and then go back to Costa Rica, get a new job, but with, with better skills, right? Well, I always loved history. And then I decided to actually take some history classes. And that's when I realized, oh, I, I, I forgot how much I love history. And, and uh, I was lucky enough that actually I... I love history so much that I did very well in these classes, so much that actually one of the professors approached me and told me, Marco, if you, if you want to get a master's, I can actually put a word. Let's, let's, uh, let's put an application in and let's see if, if we can get you in. And I was like, this is a, one of those accidents, right? But what can yeah, I take I love, it? Yeah, exactly. I love what you said about it. I, I try to tell that to students, too, that be open. I, I find myself, I don't know when I started saying this, maybe it has to do with, with my age, I'm not sure, but I'm, I'm constantly telling students to be open to opportunities, at least be open to opportunities to echo you. You don't have to take them necessarily, right, but to be open to them because they can become incredibly important in your in your life your, or your life's journey, as people say. So were those classes you were taking at Arizona State? Yes, indeed. I was taking it because, uh, um, yeah, my wife actually, uh, that's where she decided to go to uh, to do her master's. So, yeah, it was uh, there at uh, Arizona State. Um, of course, um, well, I, I was lucky enough to be uh, accepted and, uh, into the program. and um, But it was only for a master's. But, uh, again, I think that your passion shows, I think. So right. I was really eager to learn. I was really interested. And uh, then another professor, actually the chair of graduate studies, uh, after my first years, uh, told me, Marco, you should start to think if you want to get a PhD. I think that we can get you a scholarship and everything. So I kept doing my work and applied again and then was able to continue for my PhD. So, again, a little bit of accidents, a little bit of opportunities, but I, I think it was great. And, and something you just mentioned uh, uh, is very important, that actually we um, – Sometimes we think that once we are 25, our, our life is over. We already right. took our decisions and there's nothing else to do. And uh, if you think about it, I reinvented myself, you know, from basically from right. scratch. And then the nice thing is I became what I wanted because I've always, always wanted to, to be a historian. I always had that, that, that thing um, eating me from inside, right? Like be a historian, be a historian. And finally I had the chance. And so I left everything behind and, and started a new life as a historian, which, which yeah, I, I mean, don't regret at all. I'm so glad you did that. Um, uh, no, no, no disrespect to human resources folks, but um, yeah, history. You know, and the other thing is, um, oh, so one quick question. Your, your wife's name is, and what does she do? What was her field? What is her field? Um, my wife, her name is Diana Coleman. Actually, she, she works on uh, religious studies. 
Okay, uh, so she, not, also, she also has a PhD in um, um, from Arizona State. Yeah. Okay, so she was she was on a Fulbright uh, related to religious her religious re- scholarship in religion. Yeah, well, uh, we're getting into more personal thing. Uh, actually, my um, I'm talking about my my current wife. Um, right. My first wife was the one that actually came with. Also oh, she's an interesting background because she she's okay. She was a Chilean Costa Rican. But was she a historian, your first wife, or not? She was, no, she was a psychologist. She was a psychologist, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I love exactly what you just said about, um, exactly what you just said about, you know, so many of our students, I don't know so many, but certainly more than I, I think, because should be students and parents think they have to have everything figured out, right? Even before they start college, which is just not the case. And one of the things I've loved about this podcast is how many of our colleagues at Gustavus, I know this is true elsewhere, too, did not start out doing what they currently do. Mm-hmm. And you're another example of that. So uh, one of my favorite examples is our, our chaplain at Gustavus, Siri Erickson, who was a chemistry major <laughs> at Carleton College. And I didn't know that until I interviewed you, know, and then wound up becoming uh, a, a college chaplain. So this idea that there's one straight path, right, is just not not always the case. Often, And, and Greg, it is a shame that actually uh, – um, students are pushed um, into a direction that is maybe not exactly what they want, or they don't even know it. I think that it, all students should take one or two years to really figure out um, what they want and take classes in different areas. I'm yes. saying this because I have seen a lot of my students that maybe also from humanities, but also a lot of students out of the humanities that take my history classes and suddenly they are in love with history. Right. Which makes me wonder why, why, why they never thought about history as, a, as an option. Then they yeah. become minors as well, though they become double majors, in, which actually is great. If you are, I, I used to have a student, for example, that um, he was studying for to become an accountant. And then uh, after one of my classes, he decided to actually double major and, and, and do a history as well. Well, when he actually finished, uh, he was hired immediately. And one of the reasons he, he explained me later is that actually the, uh, his boss realized that he was going to be a great accountant, but that he was going to be able to write good reports. He was going to be able to, be able to write, uh, to do some research so more accountants would not understand uh, from the beginning what research means and what how to look for things. Um, and also some, some more skills that you learn as a historian. But I mean, employer, employers know this. The first right. thing is that students don't, don't know it, right? Yeah, I, could, I couldn't agree more with you. I tell that it's so true. Employers know it. That's exactly right. I'm thinking of... Um, some study I read, I don't remember, it was not that long ago, but where, where humanities majors do better in the graduate management exam than, mm-hmm. <laughs> say, straight econ majors. And I mean, this is not a knock against our colleagues in that department who are fantastic and their, their students. But, yeah, there's something. I don't know if it's true in, in, in Costa Rica. Maybe that, is that humanities track still in existence, you know, required for, for undergraduates? Yes, because it's part of the, of the public system. Um, here we have, of course, some uh, private universities, but the strongest universities are actually all uh, public ones. And so the system has changed, yeah. hasn't changed much. Yeah, I, w- I wonder if we had, I don't know, I mean, I wonder sometimes if we had a track like that, let's say, um, you know, how, how much a difference it would make. But I, it, it's funny, no matter how much we sell, you and I have written an email about this and talked one another about this. We all have in our department. We're, we're kind of in sales, right? Selling history, <laughs> history major. 
Um, because the proof is there. The proof is in, in just, it's abundant. I mean, classics majors, history majors, English majors, philosophy majors, contrary to the stereotypes, they're all doing quite nicely. And the, and the data mm-hmm. uh, are there to, to prove it. Um, so yeah, your story is great. I love that. I, um, and I, I'm glad we focused on your psych major background. <laughs> And from there to history. So did you did you choose to focus on Costa Rica? I mean, you know, one could say, well, you're from there. That's what led to you focusing on it. Or or, or, or was it more complicated than that? It is a little bit more complicated precisely because um, uh, my background, um, of course, I have an interest in European history in general. Uh, that was not my specialty, although I, I thought about it for some time. But um, I, I realized that actually as, as a Latin American, because although I'm, you can say that I'm, I'm a mixed person in that sense, uh, but I feel more Latin American than, than German, you know, in, in more Costa Rican than anything else. Um, I think that as, as a Latin American, I could actually bring something uh, to the United States that, uh, that was important. And um, it has to do with, the, with this idea of uh, very, not very proud as an American, and that, um, that I think it has to do actually a little bit with um, my, my first wife as a Fulbrighter. Mm-hmm. The Fulbright uh, scholarship, the logic behind it is to actually do uh, exchanges. So people from the US can know, go outside of the country, know uh, other cultures, but also for, for people from other countries to come to the United States, so people in the United States can actually have this interaction and get to know people from those places. Right. So I, that's my approach. My approach is, okay, I'm here to help you understand Latin America. I think that's that's my mission, right? And, um, and that's the, the emphasis I, I, I give to my classes. Well, you're definitely good at that. Um, we're glad you're doing it for our, for our students at Gustavus. Let's, so the book is, I mean, I've read just parts of it. I've read the reviews. It's just, you know, it's excellent. It's readable. It's important. It's revisionist in ways we can get into here. But is it, is it essentially an outgrowth of your dissertation? Is that, is that how you got into the topic? Right. Um, it, it came out of my, my, my dissertation, basically. Uh, the book, actually, um, I think it is re- really relevant, but uh, then you can yes. say I'm biased. <laughs> no, I don't agree with that. It is relevant, yeah. I think it's very important because um, there are actually a lot of books, especially in Spanish, about the filibuster uh, war itself. But in this, again, has to do with the curiosity I have uh, uh, being uh, both an insider and outsider. Because I saw these people here in Costa Rica celebrating uh, this, uh, this war, the national heroes come out of this war. And then I realized later that that's not common in the rest of the Americas. The most important day that celebrates the nation and national identity in the United States is July 4th. Right. And if you check in most countries, I would say in all our countries in the Americas, is the same. Independence Day is the birth of the nation. And it's celebrated as such because it's a, a, a key event for any, any nation state, in Costa Rica not. The filibuster war actually happened uh, almost 40 years after independence. And although there is a celebration of Independence Day, definitely the filibuster war is, is more important. So of course, I was always curious, why? Why is these people so interested on this? And that's where this uh, book came out, to understand yeah, a little bit part. that. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, let's, let's uh, so w- w- what year is Costa Rica in independence? Is that eight, in the 1820s or? That's right. Uh, Costa Rica was part of the, the Kingdom of Guatemala, which is basically what now is Central America. 
and uh, so they became uh, independent at the same time in 1821. Okay, and then so the filibuster war is, um, is this William Walker, that character involved in? Indeed, yeah, William Walker, um, very interesting character, a lawyer, a journalist, and a, and a medic, uh, had this, uh, a very strong influence from the ideas of the Manifest Destiny in the United States, and also, um, remember this is the 1850s, uh, he was also involved in these ideas of expansion of slavery, and uh, he saw uh, Central America as a, as a good opportunity. It's important to understand that he was not the first a filibuster. By the way, filibuster actually is it's, uh, it's an interesting word. Uh, it comes from the Dutch uh, which actually translates very closely to free booter okay. in English. Uh, but then it was transformed into Spanish as filibustero, and then it became filibuster in uh, in English, and actually the, the use of the filibuster to refer to um, somebody speaking for a long time in the Senate comes from that, because there was a senator that actually tried to defend uh, William Walker and his adventure, and maybe even tried to finance him, and he took the, the Senate for hours and hours talking about this. That's where the term, the, fili the Senate yeah, filibuster comes from. That's important, because the, the, that's right. That term, as a political term in, in, in U.S. history, enters the discourse at the same time as the as the the filibusters, right? Mm -hmm. William exactly. Walker. So when was the when was the actual war in Costa Rica? What year was that? The like war in Costa Rica starts in 1856 and uh, it continues intermittently uh, until 1860. Uh, the the core of the war uh, lasts for about a year and a half, 1856-1857. Then Walker is defeated, but he returns uh, three more times, so he was insistent. And your your book, um, as you were saying just a, just a minute ago, your book pushes back against or revises this helps to revise at least this idea that national identity is sort of correct me if I'm wrong, but kind of you know the seeds of it at least are predating independence. And you're showing no, it comes long after independence. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Yes, there are several uh, um, um, points or arguments I present in this book, and that's a very important one. Usually, um, the idea is that a nation is, is a process, that the fact that uh, France, uh, Germany, Italy exists is because there was already an identity long before. That what happens is that these German people didn't have the power to create a country that unified them, so all the Germans could live together in one single place. But the, uh, sometimes these people go all the way back. For example, now that uh, Netflix has a show about it, the Germans go all the way back to Arminius, to Hermann the German as the, the quintessential German, that the first expression of German is, and that from there on is just a process that finally ends with the unification of Germany. And this is used in many countries, right? That there is a, a, an, an ethnic group that is the, the core or the, the root of the nation. Well, of course not. In the case of the Americas in general, is is the other way around. Uh, first, mm. there was the creation of the nation state, and later, the notion that uh, we are one single people uh, came. Because, of course, we have a lot of countries that formed, uh, took a long time to form, that uh, the shape of the country in terms of territory is, is not the same now as it was 100 years ago. The, even the United States, I mean, when was the last uh, state reincorporated? already in the 20th century. Right. And with the incorporation of new territories, that means the incorporation of new people that may think different, that eat differently, that et cetera, et cetera. So that means that na national identity is, is dynamic, right?
Right. So talk to us a little bit. I, it's all fascinating. Talk to us a little bit about um, your, your answer to your question. So, you you know, you're curious about why, why is Costa Rica celebrating this exactly. um, victory in, in the war? And what, what, what does that celebrate? What do you find about that celebration and its role in uh, Costa Rican nationalism? I found something very interesting, uh, very interesting contradictions. Uh, the main hero in Costa Rica, his name is Juan Santa Maria. And you can see that name everywhere. Even the, the, the main airport in Costa Rica is called Santa Maria. You can see that name everywhere. He was a very interesting character. He was a soldier during the war. Um, he is uh, of mixed background. So it seems that he has some African background, but also some uh, European background. He was a, just a very common soldier. So he's not a president or a general, which usually are the heroes of the wars. And that is already different because that means that the people can identify with this uh, hero. But also something very interesting I found was that, well, Costa Rica doesn't have an army. Since 1948, Costa Rica abolished its army. It, but by now, the people that are around in this country, most people have never seen a, a tank in their life. They have never seen a, a machine gun in their life. They have never seen a war. So, and still they celebrate a soldier as their national hero. This is a great contradiction. Yeah. So starting to analyze this, I realized that the figure of Santa Maria is a contested figure. The state, of course, uh, uh, through the education uh, system, tries to promote one idea of, of uh, Santa Maria as, as a patriot, as somebody sacrifices for the country. This is typical. All national heroes uh, have the same narrative, right? They sacrifice for the country because that's what you're supposed to do as well. Well, in the case of Santa Maria, this is another very uh, interesting uh, uh, fact connected to the development of national identity in Costa Rica, because Santa Maria is one of the uh, is, is, a, is a person, is a member of the people, not of the elites. Then the people use Santa Maria in order to contest the identity that the elites want to establish. An example, the day that Walker was defeated was uh, May 1st, 1857. So the state started to recognize May 1st as the main holiday. No problem there. Until we reached the 1890s. And uh, the U.S. coming from Chicago and, and being a historian of the U.S. know very well what happened in, the, in that period in Chicago. We're talking right. about the Haymarket Affair, right? Yeah, incredible labor, radicalism, unrest, yeah. Exactly. And, uh, well, this is going to spark... Uh, um, unification of the labor movements around the world, and they're going to actually declare May 1st as the International Day of Labor, which, interesting enough, I always find this fascinating, is celebrated everywhere in the world except the country where it happened. Exactly. <laughs> so that, that's another thing that we can analyze as well, but that's another story. The right. fascinating thing is that by the 1910s in Costa Rica, uh, there's a shift, and suddenly the government drops May 1st as the main holiday. The reason for that is that the labor movements in Costa Rica since the 1880s started to adopt May 1st and celebrate it as Labor Day. This is very conflict conflictive because this is the time in which the United States is expanding as an empire in the Caribbean and Central America. And the United States is expanding with an economic system that actually full capitalism that is contradicting what these labor movements are going to promote. So suddenly, the same day that you're celebrating the nation is the same day that labor movements celebrate their day. 
And the government realized that going, people are going to connect both. Why? Because the labor movement is rejecting U.S. capitalism. Right. And, and what is the May 1st that the government is celebrating? A war against a U.S. army. So it's very easy to connect both. So the, the government decided to drop it and, and put another date in order to take away the power from the common people to take uh, over this holiday. So the Santa, Santa Maria, he, is he still celebrated? Is the idea that that, that is consistent, but there's uh, the non-elites non use him differently than elites? Yes, and uh, you can still see it uh, um, in any any protest that you can see on the streets when a labor um, um, you know starts to protest for better salaries and things like that, uh, or even in cases of corruption. Uh, lately, there has been a, a couple of cases of corruption, and people are um, you know go to the streets to protest against this. And it's, it's very interesting, very emblematic that they actually use the name of Santa Maria, and uh, because Santa Maria represents sovereignty. But not the sovereignty of the state, the sovereignty of the common people. And therefore, people. they use Santa Maria say, pointing out at the government and saying, if you are going to steal our money, that means that you are not better than the filibusters. And therefore, we are Santa Maria and you are the filibusters. <laughs> so it's yeah. fascinating and, that, that the use of, of the meaning of Santa Maria. Right. I mean, it's so amazing. So there's, I mean, you know, we historians, how are things remembered? But also, as your, your work shows, I mean other work on this as well. I mean, I'm thinking of memory in the U.S. Civil War, for example, how memory is contested. Mm -hmm. and, and, I mean, <clears throat> certain people, certain, let's say, elites in Costa Rica want it to want something to be remembered one way, but you can't always control that, as your example, your research shows so so vividly. The, um, you know, back to the question of relevance, which I, I wanted to touch on, you raised earlier. So what is the relevance in your view of, of this history uh, to today? Uh, you mean of, of, of the book and specifically? Yeah. Or? Well, basically, yeah, that to show that um, the national identity is dynamic, that actually uh, people and governments always try to impose their own uh, ideas of what identity is, and uh, that we have to understand that values change, and therefore societies have to change, and therefore representation has to change. The, the idea, for example, in the United States of uh, having all those statues, which is going back to the class I taught uh, uh, last semester, of uh, former um, Confederate generals, no. right. I think that that was not actually really appealing at that time, except to certain uh, members of the elites in the South. But right now, most of the country is not in favor of that. So right. although there has been a, a, some pushback against taking down these statues, I think it's important to remember that the statues only are valued or are only important in relation to what they represent. And if people don't see those values and those statues anymore, they better have to go or put in a museum or something like that because they don't represent what people are anymore. Right. I mean, <clears throat> finally, um, I just read Je Jefferson Davis is finally coming out of Statuary Hall in the U.S. Capitol. I mean, you think about it, it's mind-boggling that... Yes. He has been there, right? The leader of the Confederacy, right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's incredible. Um, Traitor, right? I, I, and, and exactly the right word. If you think about it, those you don't see those kind of statues in any other country. It's it's really right. ridiculous. Yeah, only in this country. I mean, that's a whole. I mean, the, the memory of the U.S. Civil War is absolutely fascinating. But yeah, the way we have celebrated some of us anyway, um, treason, right? Traitors. So um, yes, let, let's talk a little bit more about your. Um, so first, congrats on the book again. It's really Thank good. You. Uh, accessible, uh, it's scholarship that is accessible. You gave a great, 
presentation in our department's Pizza Profs of the Past uh, series for, for students and faculty, um, which I wish we had recorded, actually. But so people should read the book, buy the book and read it. And let's talk a little bit also about um, that course, which sounded so interesting to me, the course on uh, pandemics and collective memory. So did you organize it around specific pandemics? I decided to create uh, three different units. So the pandemics one, um, I wanted to give a, a historical background so students will not find that this pandemic is a, a, an absolutely unique and not understandable phenomenon. I think right. that uh, uh, one of the problems that we confronted, especially at the beginning of this pandemic, was uncertainty. And that produced a lot of anxiety, right? And uh, so we started, um, let me see, I, I may forget uh, all of the ones that we started, but we started a little bit of the Black Plague in Europe, of course. Mm -hmm. um, then uh, there was an epidemic in the United States, especially in Philadelphia in the 1800s. Cholera? I, I, yes, the cholera one. Right. Yes. We started that one, and then uh, we move also to talk about AIDS in the United States, for example. Yeah. Um, oh, of course, the, the, the Spanish influenza. 1918 right. in the United States. So the idea was to actually uh, analyze this, not only how they happen, but how they remember it, but also the social and economic problems that they caused and how, how people confronted them. And the idea was to give some tools to the students to, uh, to understand the current pandemic. Yeah, I mean, it's just terrific. And then um, to understand that one, as you say, the, you know, <laughs> This isn't unique, right? And two, for me, this is where history has helped me in the current context. Okay. Um, you know, for example, I'll just I'll just mention this. Um, there, there's been a lot written about you know sort of the doom of cities now, right? Cities as places where disease spreads. Well, wait a second. Think about how many pandemics there have been in world right. history, and you know, cities are still with us, right? Mm -hmm. Cities. Are with us and then that takes you into the question of why right why do cities matter why are they important and that's a whole other podcast of course but so i just think that historical perspective is really useful in um actually in helping me and i, I hope students as well and others psychologically mm -hmm. to kind of cope with um what, what, what we're going through um so i find history can be be sobering but also hopeful at the at the same time i didn't know for until just recently, I didn't know until this, uh, I guess it was this fall, early this fall, when I saw a video of a historian doing a wonderful talk on the 1918 pandemic and today, uh, Nancy Bristow, I think is her name, she pointed out, which I did not know, that Woodrow Wilson as president never mentioned the influenza pandemic, at least not publicly, not once, mm -hmm. which is incredible. And then again, you're, you know, to your point, so the curiosity, so why, right? And that leads her to argue, well... You know, to mention it would have been to acknowledge, you know, that in a way he was the source of a lot of it in that he was the commander in chief. And, you know, the United States was going into World War One. And so many of the infections were from soldiers and military and military camps and on and on. And also it would it would counter American exceptionalism. But anyway, you know, the idea that that the president at the time didn't say a word about it right? and that there were anti-maskers then and anti-mask league. Um, so I think that's so important, that historical context. And then, so that was one unit, and then the other other two units were, I know the other third was collective memory. What was the other one? The other one, yeah. uh, I called it social justice, but of course, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the idea was to talk about the protests, because um, the pandemic uh, didn't come um, as the, um, you can say is that the, maybe the main feature that defines this uh, 2020 year, 
But uh, the protests also are, are, are very important. They're very unique, uh, at least for me. I haven't seen a, a, a protest in the United States so massive, first of all. Yeah. I mean, it, it happened all across the country. Uh, not, so, not only massive, but how long it lasted. I mean, it went on and on and on for months. And the repercussion as well. The repercussion, which is the, the last unit, for example, uh, the toppling of statues, uh, uh, all across the United States, the redefining of uh, identity. Um, but it was so strong that it also influenced our countries uh, all across Europe. You know, Europe right. uh, some some very important statues went down and, and people start to talk about it. Mexico also uh, um, um, took down some more statues. Um, the, the Christopher Columbus statue is not in Mexico City anymore, for example. And uh, so you can see this connection. Uh, the, the reason is because pandemia, of course, one of the main aspects that we studied was economics and social justice. And how, of course, those that um, that suffer the most are the poorest. And in the United States, uh, there is a clear connection between uh, um, racism and uh, and how people is treated and therefore access to health um, care, for example, access to uh, um, economic opportunities that can uh, save them from unemployment and things like that. So, of course, I study that. And uh, you can see the connection. Definitely, there's a clear connection, uh, not only because the death of George Floyd and the accumulation of a lot of uh, uh, non-punished uh, crimes by the police, but, uh, but because it was a symbol of the system. So the system is not only the police, of course, uh, the problem is what I'm trying to say, but also the economic system. That is not helping people. The people of their own country is not being helped by the government, which is that's what they are supposed to do. That's why they exist. And yeah, uh, I, this is what they are protest, protesting against, right? Yeah. The and the ways. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. And the ways in which um, this pandemic has exposed. You mm-hmm. know, we knew, right? But class inequities bound up with race uh, and ethnicity. Um, bound up with geography, where you live, and on and on and on. So rural people who may not have the same access as to, to good health care, uh, maybe even vaccines as, as urban people. It's all fascinating. I mean, it's 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 at one level, you know, I'm, I'm sure you feel the same. At one level, you know, as a scholar, as a historian, I find it absolutely fascinating. At another <laughs> level, of course, as someone living through it, no, I just want to get be over with, you know. <laughs> just a vaccine, I mean, being... Um, being developed that quickly is, is a fascinating, I mean, that's maybe the first time in history that that's ever happened, right? Where the where vaccines right. so quickly and, and, and it's an effective vaccine as well. So all the stuff about memory, I find really, really important and interesting. And, you know, you know more about it than I do. It's certainly an area of fruitful studies uh, in, in, in our discipline. I can think of a historian doing work on, for example, how slavery has been remembered, mm-hmm. uh, you know, everything has a history, and I suppose everything has a memory, too, right? A collective memory. So um, let's switch to teaching a bit, since that's what you and I do for a living, primarily, most, right. most months of the year. What, and you've taught, um, before Gustavus, you've taught at other liberal arts colleges and also mm-hmm. research universities. What is it you enjoy about teaching generally and teaching history specifically? Um, that's just a very important question, and... Uh as always, it's, it's, it has to do with something that touched me uh, strongly. Um, as most uh, people that actually decide to, to study a PhD, um, the concentration is, is on, on becoming a researcher. That's what they teach you to, to do. And, and um, 
But in order to compensate, especially because the scholarship that they give you, they want you also to become a teaching assistant, maybe take over some classes later. In, in, so I was not expecting to be a teacher, although there are teachers in my family, of course. Uh, I, I didn't think about that as, as, as a career until the first time I taught. The first time I was put in charge of a class, I felt this energy coming from the students. I felt the connection. I felt the possibility of, of, um, of promoting change or, or not change, but producing, um, um, making the students think in right. therefore by thinking, producing change, right? That was fascinating and I still feel it. Every time I go to, to class, I start to talk to the students and these vibes come in again. It's, it's hard. It takes a lot of my energy, I have to say. But it's also so rewarding that uh, it's kind of addictive, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, I, boy, again, I couldn't agree more. And that feeling, I always tell myself, that's a feeling exactly that you described that I have. I think all of us who, who love teaching have. And I know for me, when that feeling ceases, then I know it's going to stop. Um, because for all the, you know, tedium that's associated with teaching, um, you know, professor meetings and sometimes grading do, man, that's a, such a good feeling. I know exactly. Mm -hmm. It's that feeling of, um, student, you feel students are learning and you're learning at the same time. Um, Indeed. It's just, there's just nothing better. Um, well, there are probably some things better like baguettes, for example, <laughs> that uh, before we <laughs> conclude. So you, I know you play the guitar yes. and, um, you so you and you've taken up baking, but you were ta you were doing the baking before at least baguette baking. You were doing that before COVID, right? That's not a, a, a COVID. Actually, it is a COVID thing. <laughs> yeah. What, what happened with with COVID is that um, well, I, I live by myself in in Minnesota, and once COVID started, I was uh, basically uh, all disconnected from from anybody else, right? My students, my colleagues. The only people I saw was the people in the supermarket and that was, you know, everybody masked and keeping the distance and all that. So I, I lost any kind of social connection. And um, therefore, I had to kind of uh, not necessarily reinvent myself, but do something about it. But one thing I discovered is I wanted to try to avoid to go to the supermarket as, as, as much as I could. And uh, because my German background, I really appreciate a very good bread. <laughs> so I decided to take my own crusade um, uh, and make my own bread. Uh, it took me actually several attempts until I finally find this amazing recipe that I have been able to twist a little bit. Now I'm actually even teaching my mom how to make bread, you know, and she loves it. Uh, I saw you Facebook page. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's so, funny. So, yeah. So you kind of self-taught. I mean, you found you found you were working with recipes online, I suppose, or, or indeed. I mean, YouTube is, is is it's a marvel in that sense, you know, because everybody uh, um, uh, records everything they do, and it's it's a great way to actually uh, uh, learn things. But once you become more confident, you know, once I I I, I uh, spoiled a lot of uh, dough, you know, making very bad bread, little by little, mm -hmm. start to get the, the ideas and was able to create my own uh, bread, which, uh, I don't know, uh, again, I'm biased. I, I love mm -hmm. it, but I think that uh, most people have tried it, uh, they love it too. And that's not the only mm -hmm. thing uh, you mentioned, you know, I, uh, my guitar, I started to play. I haven't played for like two or three years. I started to play again. I started uh, to take care of my collections. I collect coins from all around the world as well. So I started to put them in order, organize them. 
and some other things that I started to to do again, you know, to to keep myself busy, but also um, to bring those moments of um, a Zen as well, you know, those moments of peace, of meditation. All this has to do with that. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to think about and, and well, to see how much of this continues, right? I mean, the impact socially and culturally of of this pandemic on on what we're all doing <laughs> as we're inside quarantine, whatever. And I, you know, I, I sometimes wonder was there an equivalent of sourdough bread making, you know, in nineteen eighty? Mm-hmm. I don't know. But the role of you know, one thing we know is there wasn't the internet, right? We had easy access much into YouTube and um, uh, how different that was in, in, in 1918 or how different that is from 1918. So all I know, Marco, is they look good. I have not tasted them yet, but I look forward to that. Hopefully your baguette baking will continue. I've mentioned to you that I tried once. I, I, years ago, someone gave me a, I forget what it's called, but the baguette pan, the baking pan, and I mm-hmm. did try once. And, uh, you know, I could have sold them as baseball bats, I suppose, maybe, but... <laughs> <laughs> I, I need to try again. So and maybe you'll be. Yeah, you should do it. You should do it. I can uh, give you a recipe, or, or I don't know. Maybe you can. Uh, once all this is over, you know, come home so I can make some for you, and maybe you can see the process. And yeah, that would actually that would be great. Yeah. Right. Another thing I want to, of course, uh, head to Costa Rica where I've never been with you. I was in Mexico as an undergraduate, <laughs> just fell in love with it. And I think I mentioned you I, when I was hired at Gustavus. I was hired to teach. 19th century U.S. history and Latin American history, which had been my minor field in uh, graduate school. And um, I never taught a course, mostly because I, I tried to, tried not to. I just thought I would, would, would feel like a fraud um, <laughs> I to have had a, been able to create a Latin American history position that you, you now feel so ably for us. So final, final uh, question, you know, and this relates to Costa Rica. I've never been. I have some family members who've gone. And when I think of Costa Rica now, partly because of them, one of the things I think of is ecotourism. But what are what are some of the things you want people to associate with Costa Rica when they think about that place? Costa Rica, Costa Rica is a very unique country. Um, you can say that from all, uh, all countries I know, and everybody that was born and raised in one country is going to say the same, right? But it's, it's a very uh, strange place, a country in which... Um, in, in being especially located in Central America, a country that is uh, very stable politically, extremely stable. It has, it has a very, very healthy uh, democracy, uh, very stable economically. So it's a really good place to live in. But also, there's also a country in which the state, most of the time, of course, there are problems. There is no paradise. But it's also able to intervene in, in areas in which people really need it, you know, universal health care. Uh, free education, include, including uh, university education, and just just with that, uh, how much that can uh, help uh, people to to improve their lives. But it's also the attitude of the Costa Rican. Uh, there's a saying that we use a lot, even to, uh, to greet people, which is the pura vida. And pura vida, for example, if I found you on the street uh, and we see each other, instead of saying hi or how are you doing, uh, I'm going to ask you pura vida. And you're going to answer pura vida, which translates as pure life. Hmm. And it's it's a very interesting phrase because it reflects a little bit what the Costa Rican is. Uh, that everything that, that they do is to, to enjoy life. If they work hard because they do, it's precisely because they know that they're creating a better life for themselves and for everybody else. But at the same time, there's an attitude of not stressing for things that are not that relevant. So 
the people here don't like to to live to work. They like to work to live. Sure. Maybe the weather here has something to do with that as well. Yeah, um, really. and, <laughs> yeah. that you can be right. 365 days uh, out in the, on your patio just enjoying the day, you know. Yeah, I mean, that, that sounds pretty – you're right, there's no paradise, but that sounds pretty <laughs> close. So I hope to get there one day and maybe um, uh, meet Let me know. as well. Let me know, and I will, I will help you to uh, figure out the trip. Yeah, thank you. This has been super interesting. Again, congratulations on the book. I think it's terrific. Um, great reviews. And uh, enjoy the rest of your stay there. Are you are you going to be there? In, into are you staying there in the spring as well? Teaching from there, or what are you up to? No, I'm going to go back to uh, to to I mean to Minnesota. I think that's very important. That uh, I, I have all my equipment there, but also my my books. And I think that uh, at least for most of the spring, I'm going to go back to Minnesota. I may be be back here in Costa Rica at the end of spring, but I'm still debating that. Okay. Well, I know I'll see you online either way for our coffees, department coffees. Indeed. And so I always say, you know, the, even the pandemic has not stopped faculty meetings. <laughs> those, those will continue no matter what, apparently. Yeah, we so, need those. And uh, I, I really love that time that we have as colleagues. Uh, we do. Them. I mean, the coffees we have as department, that, those are important. I agree. They're yes, they are. Yeah. Well, this has been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Take good care. Stay well. And uh, we'll see you in 21. Thank you very much for having me. You're welcome. Learning for Life at Gustavus is produced by J.J. Aiken and Matthew Dobosensky of the Gustavus Office of Marketing. Gustavus graduate Will Clark, class of 20, who also provides technical expertise to the podcast, and me. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Gustavus Adolphus College. <laughs>